Hi, and welcome to the HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm your host, Annabelle Collins, and this week I'm joined by finance correspondent Henry Anderson, and Bureau Chiefs Ben Clover and Lawrence Dunhill. With the budget this week confirming the new health and care levy, it is perhaps no surprise the Treasury is looking ever more closely at NHS spending. Over the weekend, it emerged it would be doubling the health services annual efficiency target. On this week's episode, Henry and Lawrence will talk us through why inflation and the introduction of the levy are meaning the ask is higher and what this will mean for systems and trusts. Also this week, NHS leaders in London sent an open message to staff and the public warning about violence against NHS against the NHS workforce reaching dangerous levels. More on what prompted that message from Ben later in this episode. But first, the Chancellor's spring statement was earlier today. We're recording on Wednesday this week. Henry, coming to you first, you watched the budget today. Could you tell listeners what the key things were in it for the NHS? Yeah, so I guess as anticipated, the first key thing was it was no extra cash for the health service. Um, this had sort of been widely expected, uh, but it was it was confirmed that the Chancellor would prefer to use uh, extra borrowing for, for other areas, so tax cuts or help with the cost of living. Um, what's emerged following the, the spring statement there is that it's, it's clear that inflation and rising inflation is, is going to be a really key issue um, for the health service over the next few few years. In in one sense, there's a direct impact on, on staff. So you had uh, leaders warning earlier today about the impact on district nurses and fuel prices. Um, but then it also means that the funding at the kind of NHS England level doesn't go as far. Um, so the current envelope of spending was set back in October. Since then, uh, as we all know, inflation has been pushed up by, by various factors, energy, the, the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, the result of all this means now that the the NHS budget is is down around half a percent in real terms than it would have been without this higher inflation. So that's 3.6% under current inflation. It would have been around 4.1% in real terms had that not happened. Uh, the, the other thing that's probably worth noting is that the, the outlook isn't getting any better for the health service. Um, you've had think tanks today saying that it's quite clear that the Chancellor is prioritising tax cuts um, over using that extra cash for, the, for for public services. And I think there's a sense that the health service, compared to other departments, has received quite a generous settlement. The the other thing in the um, in the budget, Annabelle, was the that it confirmed the health and care levy, which we already knew about from last year that that was um, kind of baked in, although there was some uncertainty as to whether the government would stick with it because um, a lot of Tory MPs uh, don't like it. This this basically uplifts national insurance by 1.25% to raise an extra 12 billion um, to fund NHS and, and, this, and the reforms to social care funding. Um, and the, the government has been making lots of efforts in recent weeks and months to to kind of convince people and particularly its own MPs that this money will be well spent and that there's a tight grip on 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 the NHS in terms of uh, spending this money. Um, and so we've seen Sajid David um, talking in recent weeks about sort of major reforms to GP contracts and creating academy trusts and quite quite kind of big ambitious sounding reforms 
Um, and, and this was specifically re referenced by Rishi Sunak in his uh, speech today as kind of justification that this this money is going to be well spent. Um, it, I think it kind of remains to be seen how real these reforms are actually going to be. Um, and or, or whether or whether this was it was kind of handy spin for the government to, to get to get this levy passed. Um, the, the other bit of the the other bit of briefing that we've had in the last week uh, to support the levy was uh, the Treasury saying at the weekend that it was going to double the efficiency ask for the NHS from 1.1 to 2.2%, uh, 2 .2%, which uh, sounds very significant kind of on the surface, but um, Henry did a story last week um, which uh, shows that in reality trusts are going are actually going to be doing a lot more than this already. Perhaps Henry, you could come in there. Um, something you wrote last week, so it's it's worse than worse than doubling. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. So, so I guess that the context for this is that um, we're we're just about to enter the, a new financial year, a new set of rules. Trusts are kind of having to watch the money in in a way they didn't need to during COVID. And what's basically emerged in the the past few weeks is that some trusts are facing you know, substantial savings targets of up to 5%. Um, worth noting that this is all before the Treasury uh, said they wanted to double the target. And there is a general consensus that the savings of this level are, are unachievable. Um, I think one trust's audit committee noted that, you know, the NHS had never delivered this level of savings in a single year. Um, so, so the kind of the 2.2 percent is very much the baseline a lot of areas will be facing saving targets it's well above that um and yeah so you, you do have concerns uh, so nhs providers for example were pointing out that you know this is coming at a time when trusts are meant to be you know recovering their elective backlogs uh, facing big workforce gaps and, and the big sort of unanswered question is, is covid because covid funding is is, is falling away um, but obviously there is still an ongoing impact in the in the system. So, Henry, you, you touched a bit on it already, but was there anything in the budget in terms of staff pay? Yeah, so this is another uh, sort of big, big hole in the government's plans that there wasn't anything significant on staff pay. And that the worry is that um, obviously inflation is going to erode staff pay, so you could get a fairly um what some would say would be a you know fairly generous uh, 4% increase um which with inflation as high as it is could still be a real terms pay cut so there are some concerns there and i think also considering um some of the asks of the nhs in terms of recovery um a below in inflation pay rise isn't going to do much to attract people to the health service um when there's a workforce crisis um and i know ben you've been looking recently around um well, some of the progress the NHS has been making in terms of um, diagnostic targets and obviously workforce is a huge part of, of this in terms oh, of increasing, yeah. increasing diagnostics and um, well, well yeah. yeah. So so not so long ago, um, the, the Health Secretary uh, talked about uh, the a war on cancer. Um, there wasn't really anything uh, in numbers terms to back that up and the, the various Royal Colleges that are sort of most concerned with cancer, like notably the RCR, sorry, uh, Royal College of Radiologists and similar, um, said, yeah, it's, it's all very well new money, new capital for new machinery um, because we're historically underinvested in um, 
in uh, diagnostic equipment, MRIs and CTs and and the like. Um, but we are just not going to get anywhere near um, like new targets, let alone the long-term plan targets uh, to to get 75% of cancers diagnosed at stages one and two without a significant increase in staffing. Um, so so it's sort of uh, really very bad news for anyone with like concerns about cancer that there's not going to be but there's no indication i mean uh, javid had already had already made this clear there won't be much more money or any new money for for more staffing so really departments are just going to be asked to, to do more with the same amount or really with slightly less considering uh the, the below inflationness uh of the offer um how are we doing on on cancer um people are probably sick of hearing me say kind of uh record uh low performances and again that's not to stint the efforts of staff at all it's just to, to highlight like, the mismatch between resource um and demand but it, like on the most recent set of data um so this is for january uh we did see again kind of record lows on lots of the key access times um the 62 day wait um and the the two week referrals um uh, also yeah, we've been talking before about well it's been discussed before rather that uh, the cancer access targets are probably likely to change and it just came out that we want to change um some of these uh, and the consultation is still running i think it, it ends early next month um one of the key points about that was to introduce a kind of four week wait um target so 75 percent of people should be um told should be given their diagnosis um cancer or, or not uh 75 percent of them should be should be given that within four weeks they've been running that um that uh measure uh in kind of shadow form and that is publicly available and that's we we steadily declined from the 72.9 uh, percent we started with to 63.8 now so you know in a way however you measure it you're looking at the same you're looking at the same problem. Um, I thought I would just take a quick moment to. Oh yeah, so do please, if you've got an interest in the subject, do please go uh, have have a read of of that stuff and um and make your opinion known to the consultation because they're they're not uncontentious. Um, the the, the new targets like they're not going to stop publishing um anything that they already publish. Um, which was my mistake uh, when I first wrote about it. Um, I thought they were they were dropping something, but that will still be publicly available, I'm told. But the main target um, is is looking to be like the four week one. Um, the one of the justifications NHS England cited for changing the um, the two week urgent GP referral target to the four week diagnosis target is obviously on the two week urgent referral. You would um you would want on your first consultant appointment uh, and the target for that is 93 percent you would want on your first consultant appointment uh, to have a result and in many cases you do get that but um NHS England highlighted some quite egregious cases of um of trusts that had sort of set up a system that allowed them to hit the two-week target but still were giving people their actual diagnoses much much later so in theory the four-week one um was like all right it gives you an extra two weeks to uh to hold the to do the work but you must give people their their um, results within the four weeks um that's yeah it, it, i just mentioned that by way of saying that consultation is ongoing and uh the measure 
the performance on the new measure is getting worse and it's not likely to get any better given what we've heard um, from the budget. I thought I'd briefly mention diagnostics because that's such a big part of um, the UK's relatively poor performance um, relative to other uh, wealthy nations um, on cancer. Um, just on the data that's out in January, there's sort of there's sort of good news and bad news. Like on on total activity, um, you know, just the amount of work the system is doing, it's sort of gradually edging back up to pre-pandemic levels of around kind of two million uh, procedures <clears throat> a month. The the less good news is that the the total weights are are far far higher um, than they were. Kind of. It's it's a rise of um, well, it's about 1.4 million people uh, for the January uh, compared to like 1.1 previously. So it's next to 300,000 people in the system, and that's uh, and that's in a system that's only getting through people um, at this uh, only just recovering rate. Um, and and just put very simply, like the longer people wait, the more people that are waiting on, on the waiting list, the later cancers are going to get detected and the worse uh, the prognosis uh, is going to be when people receive their treatment uh, later. Um, the big push initially was on sort of the endoscopy related ones. Those are recovered slightly better than some of the other than some of the other measures. Um, and, and the one that Really, I've been surprised that sort of no one's been able to explain what has caused this so far. So, you know, if if you know, if you run non-obstetric ultrasound services, please get in touch to tell me because um, non-obstetric ultrasound is one of the biggest, um, highest volume specialties. It's about twenty percent of the of the whole thing. Um, I mean, it's about it's it's coming on for like a third of the whole waiting list, um, and it's a very high percentage of the of of just the work that is done. Um, but that that's been one of the slowest to recover on previous volumes. So um, that's just sort of where we are on diagnostics uh, and and cancer generally. So and, and I only mention all this performance stuff because you know it's in the context of there's not going to be like a load more money coming to sort this out. On um, non-obstetric ultrasounds, I do I do know there's one very big provider of those in Greater Manchester that's um, stopped um, operating after they had some pretty awful CQC result uh, inspection uh, reports last year with, with bullying and um, rubbish IPC control and and various other things, um, and so that will have that probably has taken a chunk out of it. But there's I'm sure I'm sure there's other stuff going on as well. I was reading yeah, the stenographer crisis shortage even. Yeah, I mean, just the, these are like fundamental issues about how much capacity you've got. So, like, barring a particularly successful bout of of um, enticing workers from other parts of the world, it's really not clear what what they're going to do about this. Um, but yeah, so so that's 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 very grim, and I, I worry that the next subject is going to be even grimmer. Mm. But but um, just before we move on to the next subject, Ben, I just wanted to ask you, um, how much do you know how much is being done in the in the private sector? Because I think at the end of last year, a bit less than we kind of would expect was being kind of picked up in independent hospitals. I was just wondering, do you do you have an idea of what it's like at the moment, or do you think there's going to be kind of more of a more of a push to kind of formalise agreements? 
Um, I, it's the way it's described to me by people in hospitals is that um, the private hospitals are going to be less and less keen to do NHS work. Mm. Um, and it's always worth remembering kind of the, that the private hospitals, uh, apart from the Cleveland Clinic, aren't a separate kind of thing with its own distinct workforce. These are these are largely NHS staff kind of working um, working on, on day rates and stuff. Um, so, es yeah. especially in the north of England. Right. Oh, OK, yeah, because I mean, there is some because London's a bigger market, so there are yeah. there's, there's a bit more independent uh, like medics who only work for the private sector. But yeah. broadly, um, it's the same. Yeah, like you say, especially in the north, but um, broadly, it's the same people. So it sort of reminds me of the situation a couple of oh, coming. No, about a year ago now, I'm surprised the, the wider media weren't more interested in where uh, various London uh, medical directors wrote to their staff to say, we hope you'll do the right thing. Uh, in terms of doing your extra hours, if you're going to do extra hours uh, in the NHS to treat more serious patients rather than just routine weights in the private sector. Um, but no, the way it's described to me is that the private sector uh, is going to be looking to reduce the amount of NHS work it does because it has its own significant um, backlogs now. Um, yeah. And and there's a, you know, the, the most recent set of reports from the big private hospital companies said uh, self-pay has just um, rocketed for them, like um, especially in the last couple of years, but um, but it's been a growing trend generally. Um, yeah, a sort of record turnover from Spire the other day. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, sorry, go. No, I was going to move on to our, our next cheery topic, but before I do that, I'll just say um, all our coverage of kind of what NHS efficiency targets and, and um, you know, what it's being asked to do is lots of that on our website so do check it out if you haven't already um but as promised we'll also be talking now about um a message sent actually from nhs leaders in london um quite a pointed message to the public and to staff to staff apologizing for the dangerous and that's quite a dangerous levels of violence um, they're having to put up with and the public telling them it's not acceptable um and this is quite an interesting message. And Ben, you've you've been talking to people in the capital. This is it's your patch um, around, well, what's going on really, and perhaps what prompted this message. So it might be interesting to hear, yeah, some of the, some of the context behind it, really. Yeah, um, uh, like you say, uh, it's a letter to to London staff um, from London leaders, but I don't think anyone thinks this is not a problem generally. Um, violence against staff, sadly, is a is a long, long held problem. Um, and I was just looking at some of the statistics on it from from the staff surveys. The most recent one says like 14.5% of staff experienced at least one incident of physical violence um, from patients or service users, their relatives or other members um, of the public. Um, that was for the 20. Uh, sorry, that was the yeah 2020 data. Um, so it won't include those numbers won't include uh, the increase that um, leaders allude to in the letter kind of driven by the pandemic um, and it's it's interesting the different sectors the different parts of the NHS uh, and the different factors they say affect it so so to be clear kind of it, it's a long-held problem and say the, the hospitals and particularly the, the mental health trusts um, they're kind of quite experienced 
um, dealing with, with violence in, you know, on the wards or more more usually uh, in A and E. These these are kind of gross generalisations, but broadly, and they usually have like um, kind of professional security staff on hand, um, quite well worked out protocols with with police um, uh, and other services. But um, speaking to primary care people today, uh, they say that's that's basically not the case with um, uh, with primary care. Uh, so I was talking to someone today who said, you know, the police are overstretched themselves. He said uh, quite often when they ring police, they are told, look, can they get into your, you know, into the reception bit where you are, you know, through the screen or through the locked door? No. OK, well, just um, just leave it and they'll wear themselves out and kind of and, and walk off. Um, so there's a differential there between kind of the resourcing that primary care has uh, compared to uh, compared to the acute sector on on dealing with instances in, of, uh, of aggression and you know and not all of this would be like violence some of it would just be kind of intimidating conduct and, and similar but it's all very uh, like the letter points out it's all very uh, upsetting for for staff uh, especially kind of staff who've been you know kind of applauded and lauded for their for their dedication to heroism quite recently. Um, and the thing that everyone seems to agree on, all the people I spoke to, is that what's driven, what appears to drive a lot of this, what appears to drive the sort of the increases that um, staff are seeing uh, is a mismatch between the realities of a very overstretched uh, service and what people feel like they have been promised, what, uh, what people feel like the expectation is like, um, you know, uh, it was put to me, people go like, oh, well, the sun, sun's shining outside. No one has to wear masks anymore. It feels like it's all over. So we should go back to um, kind of the level of service that I got two years ago. But like, I've, like I was talking about with the, um, with the waiting time standards, um, which can be seen in every sort of waiting time standard across every part of the NHS, those are all still hugely impacted. So lots of people uh, are, are angry about that. Like I remember seeing, um, uh, an account from <clears throat> King's College Hospital in South London saying we're used to uh, and have like again well worked kind of protocols uh, seeing violence and aggression in A&E. Uh, what's been more surprising is seeing it in like um, outpatients clinics or even like, or on the wards and things because uh, people are people are waiting longer to get less um, in lots of cases. Um, it was one of the things I thought was interesting uh, as well, and which uh, I was talking about by some primary care sources, is that um, there's a tendency for one part of a service to blame other parts, uh, and that a couple of medical directors of two very large London trusts actually wrote to their staff um, this week to say, uh, "Don't do this. <laughs> I don't blame it on primary care. Don't go like, oh, if only if only there were more appointments in primary care, um, then." This frustrated person wouldn't have shown up in A and E and then like shouted at the um, at the security guard, uh, saying to hospital staff, "Here are some things that you can do uh, to take some pressure off primary care." And I think it's a measure of a sort of of the sensitivity of um, uh, of that issue about that that letters have had to go out to say to people, "Please don't blame this all on other part of the system. Please don't blame this all on one one one, or blame it all on the ambulance service, or blame it all on GPs." Um, because it sort of it does it does affect everyone. Um, I think last point on this, and again, I, I thought this was interesting. I hopefully, most of us will have seen some of like this kind of bizarre footage of 
the most um, virulent strain of of anti-vaxxers who will like show up and like tell a receptionist somewhere that um, she is guilty of war crimes and will be taken to the Hague. Um, you know, there, there was a spate of those. I haven't seen any for, for a little while, but there definitely was a spate of them. Um, and that's definitely uh, a new phenomena that people I spoke to about about this issue said kind of over the past couple of years. Um, but there's not many of those people. But what people across the service said to me was that um, they sort of because some of their claims don't go sufficiently uh, rebutted um, that sort of letting them kind of win the air war means that this sort of much larger group of patients often the ones who are having these frustrations um not that that justifies it to be clear um sometimes will then throw out quite a conspiracy theorist kind of point again to someone who's just had to tell them i'm afraid that is all of the all of the time we can give you on this appointment or i'm afraid there is no appointment today or i'm afraid we've had to cancel your appointment for like for the fourth time um and it's very hard to to talk about um this issue uh because on the one hand you want to know what explains it um i.e uh, that people have frustrations about a service that that cannot provide them as timely uh, care as they would like or expect but at the same time making clear you know that doesn't justify it um so yeah so that's a quick a quick tour around the um slightly grim landscape of uh aggression and violence towards staff I mean, the good news is that that was coming down very gradually from them, um, from the data mm. um, 2018, 2019. But I think it's probably uh, going to shoot up when we get uh, the latest staff survey next week. Yes, next week. And in, in, in 2018, that was when the um, the violence reduction strategy was launched um, by, I think it was a sort of a cross cross party strategy. But it's sort of, yeah, the the. Um, the changes in that percentage are so are so small, but yeah, yeah. We'll, see, we'll see what happens this year. I was just wondering. I'm um, sorry, um, Ben. Oh no, I was just going to say because normally it's an it's an an issue that literally no one can disagree with. Like um, we should stop this, um, but but now if if it's sort of if it's now being bifurcated along lines of kind of like well, you know, access is is harder and that will frustrate people. Um, then it sort of gets it gets a bit more politicized. Yeah, so it's often kind of comes up in the in the wider political messages that are put out. Like, do, do you remember back in the autumn, there was a lot of um, noise from politicians and in the tabloids, particularly the Daily Mail, where they were criticizing GPs for not being not seeing patients face to face, and. Um, I think a kind of week after, within the week after all that noise was happening, there was a really nasty attack on some GP uh, staff in Manchester as a, as a practice in it. And from what I saw, there was a, I should say, alleged attack, actually, because it's going through court. Um, but, um, it, it, and in the aftermath of that, it, they were kind of very clearly linking it to the, to the, stuff that have been in the media about the lack of access to GPs so it seemed yeah. as though that was a kind of catalyst for it almost because there is there was uh, about 12 months ago a a kind of fund for primary care to sort of improve security basically but it was so small that the way it was just described to me in London was it like it amounts to about 300 quid per practice and it's like 
oh, we're going to get a, a thicker screen or a kind of a lock uh, on the door. And this also this is another of the disparities between hospitals that are better resourced on this and, and general practice is that the process for hospitals a bit more uh, experienced at using things like acceptable behavior contracts or kind of banning people in, in more extreme cases. But um, that's much more legally difficult for general practice and it has to go for a sort of a quite long NHS England process. Um, if you want to kind of transfer someone out of your practice who is a violent patient and I, I didn't know this, but there are kind of there are practices that sort of have to serve as the that have to take on all these patients basically. Um, which is obviously quite tough work. And Ben, just before we finish, I was just wondering whether um, anyone you spoke to had any comments about um, retention and whether that they were kind of noticing more people leaving or whether it's, I don't know, perhaps not got so bad yet that people are deciding actually I can't can't cope with this anymore. Although people were very much mentioning that as an issue for, for leaving, mm. like um, I'm, I'm sure for longer, but like at least a year ago, um, people were talking about it at, at conferences. Uh, I was at about a year ago. Uh, yeah, I mean, and 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 in every possible um, form, it's something like only three percent of London practices didn't report um, some kind of incident along these lines. You know, and it's yeah, it's not just not just over the phone. It's kind of like so, ninety-seven percent of practices reported something like in the practice or in the car park outside the practice, kind of like not just over the phone, unpleasant enough as that would be. You know. mm. Thanks very much. I think on that note, um, it's time to wrap up the podcast this week, but thank you all so much for joining me. And just a reminder to listeners, the HSJ Health Check podcast is available every week on our website and across all main podcast channels. Please don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. <laughs>